Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Sunday, August 23rd. After five plus months of wondering, were we going to get professional tennis back in our lives during the year 2020? We finally have our answer, and it's a resounding yes. The Western and Southern Open officially underway in New York, the first event in this three-week swing that, of course, culminates with our second Grand Slam of the year in the U.S. Open. And I I know I speak for tennis fans everywhere when I say it was so great to see our favorite players back on court once again Saturday. Now, of course, was the tennis as pretty as we would have expected? No, it was not. But that's what happens when you have a five-plus-month layoff. Nevertheless, we have so much tennis to break down. We finally have some data for us to analyze as we try and figure out what the heck is going to happen over these next three weeks in New York. And joining me on the podcast to break down all of Saturday's action. You, of course, know him as our do-everything-at-cracked-rackets, a former Denison men's tennis superstar. I, of course, refer to him as James Foster McDonald. Jamie, welcome back to the Mini Break Podcast. It's been a while. Sure has been. I appreciate the warm welcome. Yes, it has been far too long, but uh, what an appropriate time to come back. The comeback of tennis means the comeback of me to the pod, so it's all very fitting. No, I'm sure the two are synonymous for Got all me. of our Cracked Rackets fans. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, before we even get into any specific matches, Jamie, what do you think about that opening point, the return of tennis? I thought the play was a little bit sloppy. Nevertheless, it was great to see. What were your initial reactions to all of the action? Yeah, I mean, there were some flashes of really good stuff, right? I mean, I think we all just have some... Uh, granted, you don't want to try to extrapolate too much from, look, we've seen like a match, right? So uh, from each of these guys. So um, y- y- you never want to pull out and say, oh, hey, this is, looks phenomenal. But, you know, you look to some matches and you're like, wow, he looked really clean or oh, he did not look good coming out of the gate or yeah, she just looked rusty. And so, you know, we have our little preliminary takes. I think the next couple of days are going to be really telling to see how some of these people who we expect a lot of or who were young and up and comers, what did they do with the last five months? Um, are we going to be proud of them and are they going to be moving in the right direction or is it going to be a shame and be like, eh, you know, they're coming out of the gate, not looking fresh at all. So it's going to be interesting to see how these players move through the draw. But overall, I'd give it a, let's say like a B minus on the day for yesterday. No, that feels about right. I might grade them on the curve and say B to B plus simply because I miss tennis so much, right? It's just so great to have it back on the screen. But yeah, it was, you know, there were a couple of A minus A performances. Certainly you look at someone like Maria Sakari, that's about as good as you're going to get for a first match back in five and a half months. But yeah, the play was a little bit sloppy. You know, we've talked about it so much over this past time as we've waited to see if we were going to get tour tennis back. It's such an interesting five-month hiatus because in a professional tennis player's life, you're never going to have that much time away from competitive tennis unless you're injured. And so Mm -hmm. for so many of these players, yeah, probably the first month, month and a half, and we've heard from some of them, uh, it was maybe a little bit more difficult if you don't, especially if you don't have a lot of resources at your disposal to go train, to get back out on the court. But certainly for so many of these players, they've had a solid three months, and that's a bigger training block than they would ever be afforded. And so, yes, to your 
your point for players who are in that you know 25 and under category in particular who don't have to worry okay if I train too much over this time am I going to still be fresh at the end of the year they're all young they're all still going to be fresh it's going to be really interesting to see who put in the hard work who did not um yeah it's funny I kind of want to go through my initial takeaways now again because before we get into any specific uh matches because to a couple of the things I noticed and I'm just curious your thoughts Jamie one and I don't think this is surprising we continue to see the players who played a bunch of max matches during the exhibition period you know a guy like Riley Opelka who played uh in Atlanta who played down in Miami who played another UTR thing he looked really comfortable yesterday in his win over Cam Norrie and you know there are other examples you can point to as well who were able to get wins people like Jess Pagula who came through qualifying who's going to kick off her action today Shelby Rogers uh did well as well you know there are a couple of uh examples like that but I think that's one thing. If you've played exhibition tennis, you're just coming into this more match tough, and that's going to be really, really crucial for so many of these players. Two, I think the players who can make things easy on themselves. On the men's side, that means if you have a big first serve, an easy plus one ball that you like to go after, just because these players aren't match tough, I think that's going to be tremendously helpful. And I know that sounds kind of obvious. I just think, you know, you look at a match like Struff, Demon Hour, Jan Leonard Struff makes things so easy for himself. Big serve, big forehand, you know what he's going to try and execute. Alex Demon Hour is someone who wants to get into a match, right? Sink his teeth into it, make it physical, make it funky. You could argue the same with guys like Francis Tiafo and Andy Murray, and that's why we didn't see the cleanest tennis from either of them. I think the players who can make things easy on themselves are going to have a big advantage, certainly through the first two weeks of action we see in New York. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's fair, right? I mean, it, generally speaking, there's probably just less room for error. You know, look mm-hmm. at a guy like Raonic coming through it with a pretty mm-hmm. straightforward win, exactly what we would expect there, right? Because he's got the big serve. There's less variables. He's like, okay, if I could take care of this, you know, cut out those other variables that other people may rely on for their games, and, and here we are. So I think you're dead on with that one. Yeah, same with like a, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, a Diana Yastrzemska made things very easy for herself. Uh, yeah, Victoria Fritz with his serve, if you count that match. Yep, that's another really good one. Kevin Anderson, Azarenka, yep. they just made things easy for themselves. And in a time when people aren't exactly 100% confident in their ground strokes, 100% confident in their form, if you can make things easy, I agree with you. I think that's going to be a big advantage. But, you know, we had a bunch of matches today that were anything but easy. They got complicated. They went the distance. And again, as tennis fans, after five plus months, I think that's what we were all looking for on Saturday. So what Jamie and I are going to do today, we're going to, in case any of you forgot the format of these podcasts, just a brief reminder for you Crack Rackets fans. Of course, there are so many exceptional matches throughout the day. If we talked about all of them to the length that I wanted, we'd be on this podcast for four hours. So that's why I keep Jamie here to keep me grounded. We are going to break down the top four matches from the day. We're then going to run through the rest of the day's results, and we'll preview day two's action for all of you as well. So with that in mind, let's start 
with, in my opinion, certainly the headline match of the day on the men's side. Two names that always draw a big crowd, particularly when they are playing in America. And that, of course, is former Grand Slam champion Andy Murray still making his comeback from injury. We saw him win a title at the end of 2019. Of course, you know, he has dealt with so many different injuries over the course of his career. His hips, in particular, now are what giving are giving him trouble. And, you know, he's also had five plus months to get healthy. And so when he was given a wild card into the Western Southern Open, that didn't surprise anyone. But his first round opponent was another wild card recipient in Francis Tiafo. And, you know, before the hiatus, I had written a long piece on Francis Tiafo talking about why this was such a critical time in his career. He's right on that border between, you know, uh, inside the top 100 and falling outside of it, right on that border of getting into Grand Slams, getting into ATP. 250s and 500s, getting into qualifying for Masters events versus having to go back and play Challenger events, build his ranking back up. And so, of course, you forget about all of those little things over the course of five-plus months, but we got a really fun match between both of these players, and in the end, it was Andy Murray taking a 7-6, 3-6, 6-1 decision over Francis Tiafo. Let's start with the winner here in Andy Murray. It's been so, you know, obviously so long since any of us have seen him healthy. He certainly looked the part of healthy in this match. What do you think of his performance today, Jamie? I mean, I think first of all, you said it was just nice to see him back on court. Um, It's a little sad, and I'm sure even sadder for you being a a huge fan of Murray throughout the years. But I mean, you can just tell some of the movement and explosiveness just isn't there. Um, Yeah, we were talking briefly about this yesterday, but you know, Tiafa did a good job of running him, putting in the corners. Murray was in some trouble you know he could maybe get to something on the run but a it didn't have as much oomph on it as it once did and b you know that recovery step back just was not quite as explosive so um, you know you saw it moving both sides I think it got exposed a lot when he was moving to the forehand Um, you know but regardless you also saw on the flip side some resilience some of that toughness and and really that's that's how he gets through the first set here I mean it's very tight by no means are they playing phenomenal tennis in my opinion look neither of them broke but it's not like they were just having super solid holds right both of them were in each other's games Um, they both had chances that they probably should have had but didn't convert Um, and ultimately I think it's just the the Murray toughness and experience and him being a veteran that gets him through the first set yeah, I, I think one of the other buzz things that we can all look for as tennis fans in these early matches, even beyond the way these players are playing, how are they competing, right? That's a really big thing because, as we've mentioned, the tennis is not going to be pretty. And so you look at this match, you start to think about it, and you know you think to yourself, okay, um, you're right, it's ugly tennis, and in an ugly tennis match, who are you favoring? And to your points about Andy Murray, look, it was not the cleanest tennis from Murray, and I think in particular with so surprising is just how much he has to rely on slicing the backhand now, right, Jamie? I think that's the side more than anything that he's struggling to, getting to that low ball, hitting through it, and of course, vintage Andy Murray, that backhand wing, arguably right next to Djokovic as the top two backhands in the men's game. Um, But yeah, I think the way Andy Murray competed is really encouraging. He kept making that extra ball. He kept tracking down that Tiafo approach shot, and at least forcing him to 
put the volley away. And as we'll see, you know, when uh, Murray manages to get the t- uh, on the set point in the first set tiebreaker, Tiafo butchers a high forehand volley on the break point to start off the third set. Tiafo butchers that same high forehand put away volley. And so, you know, that's Andy Murray at his finest, right? Just, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts. He's doing that little extra thing uh, to win the match. And you look at his spread here in this match, you know, only five of 10 at the net. I think the higher level player he's going to have to play, you're right. He's going to have to shorten some points, move forward a little bit more. But 21 winners against 23 unforced errors in total. It was a pretty clean match from Andy Murray. He let Francis Tiafo make the mistake. He did a really good job on the big points. And, you know, I have it in my notes here. Uh, Murray goes down 5-2, one mini break in that first set breaker. Where do the two first serves for Andy Murray go? The next two points to the Tiafo forehand. And they draw short first balls. And he's able to put those balls away, get it back to 5-4. You know, sloppy Tiafo backhand error off of a pretty solid deep return from Murray 4-5 all, you know, Tiafo big serve 6-5, Murray big serve 6-all, Murray again targets that Tiafo forehand, uh, Tiafo hits an unforced error 4-7-6, and then Tiafo misses that easy put away forehand volley, Murray steals the the first set uh, with an 8-6 tiebreak score, then you get to the third set, I think it was the fact that physically he was able to hold up, that was the most encouraging thing for me, Jamie, and you look at the stats in this match, I mean, again, it wasn't the prettiest match from Andy Murray. You look at him from a first serve perspective. I mean, he was under 50% for the majority of the match in terms of actually executing his first serve, getting that ball in the court. But, you know, overall, he ends at 53% on his first serves, 36 of 46 on those points, 26 of 40 on second serve points, faced one of the two break points he had uh, faced the entire match and only faced two break points the entire match. It's a pretty clean performance from Andy Murray. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't know if it's just my personal problem with using the word clean for this. According to the stat sheet, yeah, pretty clean. If you were watching the match, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's the adjective I would use, just <laughs> because it, it wasn't it wasn't the clean Andy Murray we've seen in the past. And maybe that's just an unfair comparison because he was at that top level. But you mentioned the slice. You know, I talked about the movement early on. From those sort of standpoints, you, you know. It didn't look like that good of a performance. Um, I would say he did he did enough to get it done. That's a that's probably about as far as I'll go. It was encouraging to see him out on court, but past that, it was simply enough to get it done for me. Well, well, and I, I may have made this joke to you when we were talking on the phone. I take anyone's tennis opinions as seriously as how they think Venus, Andy Murray, and Kim Kleischers are going to do at the U.S. Open. If you think any of those three players are going to the second week, I'm sorry, but just respectfully, I'm going to take you a little bit less seriously as a tennis analyst because I agree with you. I'm not saying this Andy Murray makes the second week of the U.S. Open. This Andy Murray even has a shot at winning the U.S. Open. Absolutely not. But if you're Andy Murray, again, given the hiatus for you, I know he played Battle of the Brits, but it's a whole different ballgame when you're playing an ATP Tour event. I guess what, what much like Serena in Lexington, it was a great competitive performance from yep. Andy Murray, right? He made that mm-hmm. extra ball, and that was the most encouraging thing for me. Yep, I agree with that for sure. Yep. Now let's quickly do the flip side of this match because I have— some hot Francis Tiafo takes. I don't know if they're hot, but here's my takeaway from this match. Francis Tiafo should have won it. 
Francis Tiafo yeah. did not play poorly in this match by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, there are multiple examples for Tiafo again, in that first set. He played two really good points, you know, 15-30, 30 all uh, down. Uh, and then I think he uh, hits this beautiful drop shot volley lob combo to earn a break point at 5-all, 30-40 in that first set. Now, again, you know, I thought Tiafo did a really good job with his back. I think his backhand return is just good. Straight up, it's good. He can go inside in with it on the do side. He can take it early on the add side. It's just a good top 50 ATP level shot. I thought his first serve, his second serve, was particularly effective in this match. And, you know, you look at the stats and it reflects that fact. You look for Francis Tiafo again in this match. It was a really good performance for him. He made 68% of his first serves, 43 of 60 on those points, 16 of 28 on his second serve points was, uh, you know, only broken twice, but saved three of the five break points he faced. And yet, it always comes down to the same thing. The forehand looked better, but on the return of serve, it's just a liability. Yeah, I mean, you, you look, you get to this level and there's no secrets, right? Um, yeah. So the forehand, especially off his return, is going to get exposed. Um, I will say I did see some promising things from his forehand in general. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I saw some really good shots off of no pace balls, maybe a Murray slice, for for instance, um, where in the past Tiafo has maybe struggled more than he did yesterday. Um, so that's promising to see. But, yeah, you're right. You still saw it targeted. Um, and, and to me, the bigger takeaway here is not necessarily a specific shot or, you know, he got taken advantage of with the forehand. It was just simply the fact that, you felt like he should have been able to wrangle control of this and win it. You yeah. it, And you just feel like he should have been able to do that. And ultimately, yeah, credit to Murray for hanging in there and being tough and, and using that experience. But just a little disappointing from Tiafo's side. Yeah, minus the first serve to the Tiafo forehand with a plus one shot after it. There wasn't much Murray could do to hurt Tiafo today. No. And I actually thought this was a really good matchup for Tiafo because he's a guy, if he can sink his teeth into a match, you know, if he can play around, use his slice, use his weapons, move forward, he'll create a lot of chances for himself. And he was 17 of 22 at the net in this match. He hit 36 winners in this match to Murray's 21. You know, when he broke in the second set, he it was funny because two all, he was down 34. He came up with three really good first serves, and that's what you love to see from a young player. 4-3, 30-all, the game he breaks. He hits a forehand return winner down the line off of Murray Slice out wide on the deuce side. Then he plays a really exceptional break point where he makes about eight solid deep forehands. So yeah, I saw progression from him at the same time. The third set was really disappointing. And he should have won the first set. And so I guess, though, why you know, the hot take in this 36 winners I mentioned, 49 unforced errors against that. He had, of those 49 unforced errors, 29 of them came on the forehand wing, Jamie. And so I guess it's funny when I look at the U.S. Open, I actually think if the draw breaks were right for Francis Tiafo, three out of five sets when he can impose himself physically. And, you know, keep in mind, he did have COVID during these past five months. We're still wondering how he's recovering from that. I do think with this level, he could he could make some noise at the U.S. Open. I'm not talking about second week, but second, third round if the draw breaks right. I thought he was the hit the higher level of the two players today. Yeah, I think he could win a couple matches. Um, you know, I mentioned it before, but especially on the forehand wing, if if that gets 
going a little bit more. Um, you know, we saw some really good offense from him today or yesterday, excuse me. Um, and so I, I think you're right. He could win a couple matches depending how the draw breaks. But yeah, I mean, just ultimately unfortunate that he couldn't get it done and, and at least get some uh, some good momentum from this tournament going in. No, I agree. And my last thing on this match has nothing to do with the tennis, but it speaks to the environment. And, you know, I, I, I was going to save to the end. We can do this now. Your thoughts on there not being fans in the crowd, on there not being sound effects being put in by ESPN to, you know, at least rep replicate that crowd noise but what was really fun for me you saw people like you know Haley Baptiste is in the Francis Tiafo box Kim Kleisters is at the match Jamie Delgado is at the match Danny Valverdu's at the match uh Stefano Tsitsipas is that Apostolos is at the match because Apostolos now uh or was it Tsitsipas Tsitsipas or not Tsitsipas excuse me someone from Team Zverev that would be actually uh Danny Valverdu is at this match watching Murray and scouting before and it was just really fun to see all of these players. Apostolos Tsitsipas was at the Edmund Anderson match because that's who Tsitsipas plays next. You know, all these people have nothing else to do, and so to see all these various members of the tennis world at these matches, I just love that. Yeah, it's pretty funny, and, and you know, if they were scouting before, you wouldn't see them in the crowd necessarily. Exactly. You wouldn't see them around now. They're the only ones there, so it's like, huh, what's he doing here? Um, no, I mean, it's it's kind of cool. Look, obviously, it's it's nowhere near as good as when there are fans there. There's a lot of things you can speak to. You, you, you wonder if the level um, would potentially rise, you know, because of the emotion and, and the stimulation that, that, that these great athletes have, right? A lot of them feed on that crowd energy um, and it's simply, you know, when they're in more of a state of arousal, they're, they're going to be heightened and you see some of that top play come out. Um, you know, I was talking to some folks yesterday. I don't think we're going to see any of our, what we would call classic matches out of this with no fans. Um, but nonetheless, you got to hope for some clean performances and Hey, at the very least tennis is back, right? Yeah, no. First of all, I think we just found our pod title, State of Arousal. That's Correct. money. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the level of play not being its you know its finest today had nothing to do with the lack of fans. It just had to do that we haven't seen competitive tennis in five-plus months. And so, yep. you know, I've said this before. Would I love ESPN to put in the breakpoint clap, the slow clap sound effect for every breakpoint? Yeah, I would love that personally as a fan. But did I think it was weird to watch these matches without crowd noise? No, not really. I mean, it was still just really good tennis and I will watch tennis under any circumstances so maybe I'm weird like that but it didn't influence my viewing experience nah it was all right again you hope they're fans there but no I don't need any fake crowd noise pumped in yeah I completely agree with you there well someone who might have needed some crowd noise last night to get over the hump and someone who certainly did not need any noise because she had plenty going on in her own head the next match I want to talk about number 16 seed Diana Yastremska who you listeners have not heard this yet on Monday you will hear part two of the great shot podcast I did with Ben Rothenberg where we talk at length about our players to watch the ones we find most interesting heading into New York one of the players who was on on my list, Diana Yastremska, the number 16 seed, the immensely talented 19-year-old Ukrainian who got, or I believe 20 years old now, got a really good win last night. Well, I don't know. Was it a really good win? I suppose we'll discuss that. 5-7-6-2-7-5 over Venus Williams in a match that I can only best describe, Jamie, as just uh, back and forth is the wrong word. This match was just all over the place. It was all over the place. Scattered, yeah. Um, yeah especially in the first set. I mean, you know, you look at this, you're like, kind of, what's going on here? 
Um, and honestly, this isn't that uncharacteristic for some Venus Williams matches we've seen um, in the last few years, right? Where you don't really know what's going on. You look at her level, you're like, wow, she's going to go down two breaks instantly. And then she brings it back. And it's just kind of, like you said, all over the place. And, and that was definitely true in this one. Um, the first set in particular, you know, if you watched a two-minute clip of it and tried to guess how the rest of the set would go, I guarantee you would be wrong no matter what you guessed. It was it was one of those things where it just there wasn't any consistency, um, but we ended up with a competitive match at the end of the day. So I mean that's why we're here talking about it. Yeah, I mean when you talk lack of consistency, when you talk erratic, that's Diana Yastrzemska in a nutshell. That's why to me she is. The, one of the most interesting players to watch over these next three weeks, one of the most interesting to watch over these next 24 months, really, because she's any list you're making of talented young up-and-comers, and obviously Kennen, Osaka, Andrescu, they've won slams, so you're going to put them at the top of the list. If right immediately after them, you don't have Diana Yastrzemska, if you don't have her in her top eight, in just terms of raw talent, in terms of potential upside, then again, I don't know if I can take you seriously as a tennis analyst, because you watch Diana Yastrzemska play, the ball just explodes off of her racket. And I will admit, I spent a lot of time with her coach, Sasha Bajin, last week or two weeks ago, whenever Lexington was. He came on the call with us on Tennis One. I finally got to pick his brain about Diana. And he said this. It was really well put, I thought. He said, you know, you put a wall, you put an obstacle in front of Diana Yastrzemska. She's not going to figure out how to go around it. She's not going to try and figure out any, you know, you know, anything else other than she's going to try and bludgeon her way through that wall. She's just going to swing and swing and swing and try and hit you off the court. And when you're watching a young player, to a certain extent, you really enjoy seeing that mindset. You like seeing someone who's not going to get afraid of the big moment, who's going to try and swing their way through problems, who's going to stay aggressive even when, you know, they're going through streaks of uh, poor play, when they're going through streaks of errors. And yet... I thought Renee Stubbs, who was on the call for this match for ESPN, was so brutally effective in breaking down Diana Yastrzemska when she said, look, right now Yastrzemska has a junior mentality. She gets worked up over the little things. She was trying to challenge the electric line calls, and Renee Stubbs kept saying, I don't get why these players are challenging. These line calls are electric in the first place. You're literally challenging the system that's about to tell you that your challenge is wrong again. Um, And so just all these different little things. And yet, I can't watch Diana Yastrzemska and not just see a player who has the potential. If she's hot for two weeks, she could just hit any opponent off the court. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's really interesting context, too. Um, You know, while someone we're probably not going to break down, but someone will at least mention later. What do you think of a comparison between her and Shapovalov on the men's side? I think that's a really, really good one. And I always love a cross-tour comparison. Yeah, two players who legitimately... I I think Shapovalov comparatively moves a little bit better than Yastrzemska does. Um, But at the same time, I mean, Diana Yastrzemska, you saw the way she moved Venus Williams around the court, the way she would just... It it got to a point where Venus was like, oh, if I hit a forehand to Yastrzemska and she hits this forehand cross-court, there's just no point for me running to it because if that ball's not a winner, the next ball will be. I mean, Diana Yastrzemska has that sort of power and you know she holds Venus to 21 of 47 on second serve points when Venus would float a second serve you just can't do that to Diana Yastrzemska because you cede control right and yet much like
like Denis Shapovalov, you know, seven double faults is never something I'm going to love from Yastremska. Only 55% of her first serves go in. Not going to love that. She faced 14 break points. Now, she saved 11 of them, but she faced 14 break points. Yeah, it can get a little bit erratic. So I actually, I really like that comparison. Yeah. Uh, but no, well, sorry to take us off this match in particular. But yeah, I mean, it was it was an odd one. You know, similar. I don't want to say the same because it's certainly not. But what we saw with Murray, um, where he was able to hang in there um, and get the first set, is kind of what Venus did. Um, you know, she was on a. If you watch the first set, um, it really looked like that thing could have gone. She could have lost. You know, very quickly and very easily. Um, but then she kind of turns it around, and I think in a lot of ways, too, Venus was like, well, I'm just going to be out here and exist on court as a veteran and hope that gets me some credit. Um, and I think that did. Um, I think that's ultimately a little bit how she got back into that first set. If you watched, there were times Yastrzemska had her completely stretched. Venus was 10 feet behind the baseline. Venus was just simply trying to make balls, and, and it worked for a little bit. Uh, but then over the course of this match, it just sort of stopped working. Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> what was so funny, excuse me, in this match— you know, Yastrzemska and Stubbs also referred to this. It seems like she got in Venus's head, whether it's her going back to the towel, her taking a little time, and it felt like it was at the pace of the return or not the pace of Venus, and multiple mm. times Yastrzemska went over on the serve clock, and, you know, the chair umpire didn't really call it until the very end, and, yeah, Yastrzemska just plays all of these little games, and, you know, she breaks for 5-4, she gets broken at love, the sloppiest game I've seen for 5-all. Well, guess what? Then she breaks Venus at love for 6-5 in just a beautiful display of power tennis, holds really easily to win the match. As I mentioned in Palermo, uh, when that happened a couple weeks ago, in her match, she blew two match points against Camilo Georgie. And so, you know, the takeaway for Yastrzemska, as always, is it's still all over the place, but the talent is still quite evident. Yep. No, I think that's right. And she gets through this one, and, and you hope to see more and more uh, that she gets some momentum coming out of this tournament. But yeah, I mean, this match could have gone the other way, but I, I think ultimately... She deserved to win it, and she got through it. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, another player who's building some momentum now on their side, the next match I want to talk about is Kevin Anderson, who obviously a two-time slam finalist, right, makes a final of Wimbledon, makes a final of the U.S. Open, and then deals with injuries. For a lot of these past 18 months, he's finally in a place where he is feeling healthy. He can get back on court, and, you know, in our GSP preview of the men's singles draw, Matt Stokowiak and I both talked about why Kevin Anderson's match against Kyle Edmund would be one of those most intriguing first-round matchups, of course. That's a rematch of the 2018, I want to say, Australian Open first round. Edmund beats Anderson from there, rides that momentum to the semifinals. That was not the case in this one. Kyle Edmund uh, getting the chance to serve for the first set up 5-3, gets broken at 30-40, bro- bro- broken with a double fault on that break point as well. Anderson's able to take that first set 7-6. And he holds on after Kyle Edmund fights back for 6-4 second set. Anderson takes the match 7-6, 4-6, 6-3. I have a hot Kyle Edmund take for you, Jamie. But first, again, let's start with Kevin Anderson. What did you think about his return performance in this one? I mean, this one was one of the most promising uh, that I've seen, especially because you mentioned the injury, you know, plus, you know, that whole pesky global pandemic thing. I really didn't know what exactly to expect from Kevin Anderson at a tour level event like this. Um, You know, I think he's right out of sight of 120 right now in the ATP's at 123. So, you know, 
you wonder where exactly he's going to be, like you do with a lot of these players. But honestly, I was really pleased with his level. Um, and, and I'm not saying that Edmund didn't have his chances and, and couldn't have won this match, because he certainly could have. And I think we'll get more into that as we as we move um, to get more granular. But overall, big picture, I was pretty happy with performance in general. And with Kevin Anderson in particular, I thought he looked good. He served pretty well. Um, it was His first serve was effective, as we would expect it to be, right? I mean, it's Kevin Anderson, for God's sake. So... I think he did very well in that regard. Um, I was happy to see him out on court, and you know his ground stroke looked relatively good. And like you said, the serve kept him in it and won in this match. Yeah, he moved well, as you mentioned, 50 of 62 on first serve points, 81%. And yeah. coming back and seeing Kevin Anderson, you know, there are a lot of players with big serves, right? Sam Query, big serve. Milos Raonic, big serve. John Isner, big serve. I think I like Anderson serve the best of them all. I just think, you know, Milos doesn't get enough credit for just how freaking dominant he is on serve. And by the way, Milos just milos his way through his match against Sam Query. Sam plays literally one bad game in each set, and that was the difference, 4-4 four and four for Milos. But I just think the action on the Anderson serve is that much more impressive than everyone else's. And you know, you're talking about the top .0001% of servers in the world, and you're trying to distinguish between between them, but just the action off of the Kevin Anderson serve, I've forgotten about that. I forgot how beautiful his spring of his legs into that serve is, you know, just the way that ball explodes through the court. It was really impressive performance for him. Now, you know, only 12 of 21 at the net, that's probably got to be a little bit higher as we move towards the U.S. Open if he wants to really compete, and, you know, 19 of 43 on second serves, yeah, that's pretty concerning, but yeah, I thought it was a clean performance from Anderson, 38 winners, 33 unforced errors, considering he changed his shirt about 17 different times during the match, I thought he held up pretty well physically in it, Um, but yeah, it was a good performance from Kevin Anderson, and this gets back to what I said at the top. If you can make things easy for yourself, particularly in a time when not everyone is playing their cleanest tennis, you have a huge advantage, and I think Anderson displayed that advantage today. Yeah, no, I think you're right, but now I'm really curious about what you said. Give me your hot take on Edmund. Okay, you recall that you and I did a podcast where we listed the top superlatives on the ATP Tour, right? Best forehands, best backhands, Mm -hmm. best whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. It was downright criminal for us not to include Kyle Edmund in the conversation about the most explosive forehands. Did we not give him an honorable mention? Did we? That's what I was thinking as well. We got to go back and listen because I remember a pod where we talked about the Edmund forehand, in particular the cross court forehand. I remember myself saying that. Now, which pod? Have no idea, but I for sure (laughs) said that at some point. No, there's no doubt that both you and I, and you know this, Kyle Edmund dating back to even before he made that breakthrough at the Australian Open. That was one of the guys I watched. I always say there's an article, if you go back in our Cracked Rackets archives before the start of the 2018 season, you'll see I took Kyle Edmonds, Stefano Tsitsipas, and Daniil Medvedev as my breakout guys for that season. And they all ended up breaking out that season to various degrees. It was pretty cool. I was like, oh man, should I try this a little bit further? Evidently I did. Whether it's a good decision or not, I suppose we'll all see. Anyways, Kyle Edmund, you know, I sent out a tweet yesterday. I thought Taylor Fritz was moving a lot better than I remember. He hit this one backhand pass against Lloyd Harris, and I was like, two years ago, Taylor Fritz does not get to that ball. I thought Kyle Edmund moved really well in this match. I think he has gotten more athletic. I think he has gotten more explosive, more confident swinging through his backhand. And look, for Kyle Edmund, you look in this match, 28 winners against 31 unforced errors. It was a 14 winner to 18 uh, unforced errors. 
air ratio on his forehand wing alone. Um, but I, I love Kyle Edmonds' game. I mean, you can't give him a forehand because if you do, and as Kevin Anderson learned in this match frequently, you're just, you lose the point. You're just like, I have lost control of this match. And yeah, sometimes Edmund throws in an unforced error. Evidently, he did here. Uh, But I, I just think that Kyle Edmund forehand, you look for shots that can just dominate a match. It's one of those rare shots on tour that can just dominate a match. Yeah, I mean, look, once he has the chance to dictate a point, off of his forehand, more more often than not, it's over. Yeah, you um, lose. I think. Yeah, when it come up against when you're coming up against Kevin Anderson, though, I mean, look, Kevin Anderson just has the huge serve, and you're not in a place where you're always going to get to a neutral point, right? So if he has the potential to have a neutral shot route, I mean, then yes, Edmund's going to be in a great position. But Anderson, to his credit, knows this obviously and didn't let those neutral points, you know, add up in the tally, right? So because you know, hey, if we're playing a ground stroke game here. Like, this is this is quite different. I'll just say that uh, nicely for Kevin Anderson. But he has the serve. It keeps him in it. Um, he knows not to let Edmund just get in that rhythm of hitting, you know, huge forehand after huge forehand. And, um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, Edmund, a little bit uh, kind of a bummer for him, I guess. I, I didn't want to see either of these players lose, so that's why I was kind of sad in general. But that's the way it goes. And, I mean, I think Anderson did deserve to win. Um, regardless of what you say about the Edmund ground stroke game, Anderson served well, and like you said, it gave him that advantage and ultimately comes out on top. I think two things can be true. Anderson deserved to win the match with, again, the way he competed, but Kyle Edmund should have won this match. And He blew some know, chances. Yeah, yep. there's one break of serve in the second set by Edmund, one break of serve in the third set by Anderson. You know, that first set, though, Kyle Edmund served for it at 5-3, and he only yep. got to 30-40 in that game, just a couple of loose errors. And, you know, for Kyle Edmund, what was so encouraging, he raced out to a two-love lead, right? Uh, broke Anderson right off the gate, just looked so explosive out the bat. And, you know, yeah, again, it's the missed return here, the missed return there. I thought it was very very similar to Tiafo in that effect. I also thought for Kyle Edmund in this match, 53% of your first serves going in is just unacceptable. You have to make more first serves against Kevin Anderson, uh, particularly when you've won 73% of your points on your first serve. And even if you have a 52% clip on the second serve, you just can't give Anderson a clean look at a return. But this was a two out of three set match, and I know Kyle Edmund lost it, but he's another guy who I just... I'm feeling good about going into the U.S. Open. I liked what I saw today from Edmund. If he can clean up the first serve percentage, if he can just get over the finish line, I I mean, again, how you compete, he didn't compete that great today if he wasn't able to, you know, hold serve and close that first set. But I really liked his level of play in general. Yeah, I mean, definitely promising for the coming weeks. Um, and like you said, if the, another one of those guys where if the draw breaks right, for sure can see him winning a couple matches. No reason why not. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. And again, he was a guy who has won a title in 2020. So he has some momentum on his side, uh, just not able to carry it through this match. And so again, it's Anderson who advances to play Stefano Tsitsipas. And that's obviously going to be a really fun match for all of us here on Sunday. But one more match we want to break down from Saturday's action. And again, it's just so great after all this time, Jamie, to get to talk tennis, to not have to talk about, oh, like there might be a merger between the ATP and WTA Tour. Oh, did you hear about that one thing that happened over in that one place that we have to talk about today because we're trying to fill some content? No, we have hard results to talk about, and you and I are always going to talk about a Tommy Paul match. We just have that quality amongst us. And unfortunately, in this one, we're not talking about a Tommy Paul victory 
but it was a really high level of play. Arguably the best tennis I saw of the day came in Tommy Paul's 6-7-6-4-7-5 loss to Ricardus Barrancas. This was a really fun match, Jamie. It was a physical match. Both of these players, you know, able to track down that extra ball. Both of these players wanting to dictate using their ground strokes from the baseline. Uh, but in the end, Barrancas just too much firepower against Tommy Paul, able to do a little bit more dictating. And in the end, that's why he was able to take this match. In my opinion, the stat that says everything, Barrancas 19 of 25 at the net in this match, Tommy Paul 5 of 7 at the net. That's reflective of their court positioning. It's reflective of their mentalities on a point-by-point basis. And ultimately, it's why Barrancas was able to break Paul in that 5-6 service game in the third, get over the hump for a 7-5 victory. Yeah, I mean, look, you go back to what you kind of expected from this match. I don't know about you. Was this pretty much dead on what you expected? Yeah, to a T. Yeah, because that's that's sort of how I feel too. Because, you know, unfortunately, you, you, Tommy Paul had his chances, right? I mean, look, it took Barankas, what, seven match points to get it done. Um, so Tommy Paul had his chances to sort of claw his way back in here. But as you mentioned, Barankas just so many weapons. I think I described him as a walking weapon yesterday when we were going <laughs> back and forth because, I mean, no matter where he is, he's going to get himself in an offensive position and impose that. And, and that manifests itself in the net points you talked about earlier. Um I think for me, it's unfortunate to see just because, well, look, the grinder in me always appreciates somebody who's going to go down and, and run run down balls, track everything down, and be able to stick in points and, and, and subsequently the match. Um, I mean, Brankus deserved to win this match. I'll just yes. say that. No, completely agree with you there. Here's the difference. Brankus played to win. Tommy Paul played not to lose. And I know that sounds very simple. That's obviously a little bit cliche, but Barankas was the one moving forward. And yeah, he hits 26 winners to Tommy Paul's 25. You look at the unforced errors, Barankas has 43 to Tommy Paul's 35. But Barankas was the guy taking chances in this match. He was the one trying to end points. You know, Tommy Paul kept waiting for an error. And, you know, there are times still when Tommy Paul will show off his athleticism when he'll just slap a forehand down the line, slap a forehand cross court where you're just like, up, oh, I'm not tracking that one down. But, you know, for Tommy Paul, it's twofold. A, and I, I keep talking about this because to a certain extent, watching all of these players, it's one match. And I'm trying my best not to overreact, right? Like, I was ready to uh, hit the panic button on Alex Diemenauer. Like, no ball of his was landing past the service line yesterday. And it was like, oh my God, if he, yeah, yes, he's as athletic as they come, but if he can't get a ball past the service line, what are we doing here? For Tommy Paul, you know, I love, love, love the way he competed. The fact that he was tracking down every ball. The fact that he clearly recognized he was not playing his cleanest tennis. You know, he only made 47% of his first serves, and yet he was pretty effective on serve. 65% of his first serve points won, 58% of his second serve points won. And it was the fact that, again, he was trying to track down every ball, trying to bait Barankas into taking a risky approach. And obviously it worked, given Barankas had eight more under forced errors than him. But the core positioning was just unacceptable for Tommy Paul. You can't be six feet behind the baseline against a guy as talented as Ricardus Barrancas, who, as you mentioned, Jamie, just wants to be waiting for that ball that he can slap down the line. You know, Ricardus Barrancas, 30 years old, 5'9", only number 70 in the world, but this was one of the most talented juniors in tour history. You know, this is a guy who won multiple junior slams. This is a guy who just physically maybe not able to do it anymore the way that he used to, but you can never deny his talents as a shot maker. Um, And for Tommy Paul, he just 
he played Barankas's game too often. He was the one, again, he was six feet behind the baseline. I love the way he competed, but it just needed to be a little bit more aggressive. Yep, I think that's fair. In a lot of ways, playing the game he did allowed Barankas to do exactly what he wanted to the whole time. Yeah, and Barankas, again, was really patient in this match. He deserves yeah. a lot of credit, as you mentioned. He deserved it. He created 10 break chances for himself, converted on four of them. You know, for Tommy Paul, only had four break chances, did convert two of them. But Tommy Paul is too skilled a volleyer, too good of an athlete, too adept. You know, he's able to take balls early. Five of seven at the net is just not enough. No, that's not enough, especially for a match that kind of goes the distance here. Yeah, but again, the theme for all of these matches, Tiafo Murray, Edmund Anderson, Paul Barankis, Venus Yastremska, they were either ors, right? And that's something that I think was really enjoyable to see so many of these players competing really well. Uh, even if you lose today, yeah, you have to sit in New York now for a week, but I think if you're Tommy Paul, shouldn't be discouraged that he lost this match because there are just a couple of little things if he cleans up, he can, again, compete pretty well in New York. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some positive takeaways from this. And at the very least, you just got some match experience and some pretty good match experience at that. So yeah. nothing bad. No, completely agree with you. Well, with that, then let's run through the rest of the day's matches. And again, there are so many matches. Of course, Jamie and I could break down all of them. That's how much we've missed tennis. That's how glued we were to our screens yesterday. And it was great to have the text working with you, with Maddie, with all these other people again to get to actually talk about tennis. Let's look at the women's side quickly. Other three-set results we had. Kudermatova, a three-set winner over Tomjanovic. Bernarda Pera, three-set winner over Heather Watson, those were your only three set matches, but you know, you start to look at some of the other notable ones. Azarenka, two and three over Donna Vekic, that was a really good win. Ekaterina Alexandrova, five and six over Elena Rybakena, and of course, if you remember, uh, you know, those are two of the top 15 players from the first two months of the 2020 season. Alexandrova won a title, Rybakena not only won a couple titles, but made a, a couple other big finals as well. So that was a really good win for Alexandrova, who fought a Two set, uh, two set points from Rybakina in set number two. Uh, of course, then the other notable one, Maria Sakari, straight set winner over Coco Goff. Uh, just again to quickly run through the rest of these results, Jamie Mukova in straight sets over young American wildcard Ann Lee, Anisa Mova in straight sets over Ali Risk, and then Kiki Mladenovic straight sets over Sevastova. Your thoughts on the rest of the women's action? Yeah, I mean, you have some matches that were not close that maybe you expected to be a lot closer. Um, the Donna Vekic and Azarenka one was surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, good for Azarenka, right? Getting out of there with a clean two and three. Um, but I was not expecting that at all. Um, I think maybe the other one you point to, and maybe this is just some of the, the social hype that we get, but Coco Goff only winning four games against Sakari. Granted, Sakari played incredibly well um, and deserved to win this one comfortably, but one and three is very comfortably. I'll just say that. Yeah, my takeaway from that match, and I sort of loosely referred to it earlier, it had nothing to do with Coco Goff. It had yeah. everything to do with how well Maria Sakari was playing. Yeah, she did play very well. Yeah, and so much-deserved win for her there. I think it's encouraging to see Amanda Nisimova, who, of course, again, any list of talented young up-and-comers, she's certainly on it. Her, you know, given all of the, you know, off-court turmoil she's gone through in her life these past 12 months to get a really good win over Allie Risk 3-3, that was really impressive. 
And yeah, you know, Cornet 0 and 4 over Katie McNally. That first set was brutal, but uh, yeah, it was a really good t- day of tennis, I thought, on the women's side. There are a lot of fun matches that Sakari played so well. You know my fascination, Jamie, with the Vekic, Mertens, Conteve, Sakari quartet. I think I've talked about that more these past two weeks than any other topic. Um, but yeah, again, something we're noticing. If you competed at all in the UTR or UTS or in any of these exhibitions, you just have a competitive advantage. And I don't think it's going to surprise us to see the players we have seen uh, have success. Quickly to go through the men's side, because again, there were some other great results. Straight set wins for the young Canadians, FAA and Shapovalov over Basilishvili and Marin Cilic, respectively. Borna Cioric, uh, Taylor Fritz, two other next geners with easy wins. Fritz 1-3 over Lloyd Harris. Borna Cioric 6-0-1-0 uh, retirement from Benoit Pair. My guy, Pablo Carreno Busta, earning 10 push-ups for me, courtesy of Matt the Cracks the Koyak, as he knocks off the deuce in straight sets, Opelka a straight set winner, Milos Raonic a straight set winner, and Filip Krajinovic a straight set winner as well. Your takeaway from the men's side, Jamie? I mean, hey, Canada looking good, 3-0 and there. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, I, I think out of the Canadians, I would say the most fun one to watch for me was Shabovalov. I was wondering how he was going to be. Man, he looked really good. Um, really he, good. he competed incredibly well. Um, he was very intense the entire time. You know, he took advantage of every chance he got. And no, Chilich isn't, you know, peak Marin Chilich, but wow, that was impressive. Yeah. And I highlight of day one for me, unequivocally, Steve Weissman going to commercial break, reading off, he quotes Dennis Shapovalov's new rap song. I, I forget the lyrics he used, but he goes two verses back to back, and then he takes us to commercial break. And it was just peak tennis. I was like, we're back, baby. We are finally back. And so it was just, it was something else. Shout out to you, Stevie. Uh, Obviously, Steve Weissman, friend of the show here. But yeah, the young Canadians looked really great. I think what's so encouraging, you look at the trend, right? Even the guys who lost Tommy Paul, Francis Tiafo for young guys, they looked good in their performances today. But, you know, that Riley Opelka keeps rocking and rolling. That Taylor Fritz keeps rocking and rolling. That Shapovalov and FAA, who both looked good to start this season keeps rocking and rolling again gets back to the early takeaways if you had the big mo at the start of 2020 just any momentum any confidence given the lack of competitive tennis that's been available that's just a huge advantage heading into these three weeks because tennis is such a sport of confidence and so yeah I agree with you it was great to see those young players continuing to you know have success for Opelka, Fritz, Shapovalov, FAA Uh, yeah they're all dangerous they are all playing really good tennis they all need to be taken seriously uh, as contenders to make the second week of the U.S. Open I think that's really exciting to say can we do two minutes on Demon Hour Struff? Go for it. Okay, thank you. Jan Leonard Struff balled out yesterday. And I appreciate having you on the pod to talk about this because, as our Cracked Rackets fans may remember, Struff was one of our CR darlings, right, at the end of last season. Yeah. We just thought he was playing a really high level of tennis throughout the year with his serve, his forehand. I just think he's that category of player where he can make things easy. It's clear he looked confident, and maybe it was just a one-off performance, but, man, I was impressed by Jan Leonard Struff, who just took it to Alex Demonauer at the same time, 
I have never seen Alex Diemenauer just overwhelmed with power at the way he was as the way he was in this match and we've said it this entire time it's one match try not to overreact should I not overreact to this Diemenauer result Jamie is this more a testament to Struff what Diemenauer did wrong you know what were your feelings on that one I mean, look, I think it's some of both. The The thing we've come to know with Dimenauer for the last couple of years is that, you know, when he's met with pace, he loves it and he scrambles and he can, you know, hit with firepower back, run everything down. That's how he plays. But in this one, you're right. I mean, the, the word was simply overwhelmed. I mean, this straight set win by Struff was incredibly impressive. I don't think you should take too much of it. If you're going to take more for one player than the other, take more for Struff to his credit than Dimenauer to his, you know, demise is a dramatic word, but any sort of negative connotation with this, because no, it wasn't a great performance, but everything was on the racket of um, Jan Lennart Struff, and he deserved this win, and I mean, it was comfortable for him, It was com- which is just weird, because never did I expect this match to be a comfortable win for either party. Here's what I liked, that Alex Dimenauer's level got better as the match went on. You know, he made 47% of his first serves, 5 of 17 on second serve points in set number one. That number got up to 64% in set number two, and he was 15 of 16 on those first serve points. Now, 3 of 9 on second serve, still concerning, because you look at Alex Dimenauer, that's always going to, you know, jump out to you, that second serve, very, very attackable. Uh, again, I said this at the top. Demon Hour is a guy who physically wants to sink his teeth into the match. He wants to make it ugly. He wants to make the match longer. Again, more physical. Make it as difficult on his opponent as possible. Given the fact that he hasn't been able to do that in you know five plus months, part of his uh, competitive thing is finding his rhythm and just being able to make that extra ball routinely. I'm a little bit concerned just because there's been such little tennis, but you're right. I, I, I do agree with you. I think this had more to do with Struff playing well than Demon Hour. And the last thing I'll say on this too, I mean, yeah, Struff, I, I would still, you know, classify it as a comfortable win. But as you mentioned, the level definitely got better and Demon Hour had chances in the second set. Um, mm-hmm. He had two break points to get back. He only had one break point against him and, and Struff converted it. So it's, it is what it is at this point. This This result doesn't, you know, terrify me by any means but yeah it's not great for Damon Hour but good for you Struff that's pretty much my take on it now no that's a good take again I I said this on Twitter the rust factor was evident in the Demon Hour returns he just he couldn't do anything on his return of serve and that was a big issue for him especially given that's usually one of his better shots but that's all of the day one action of course we are in for another fantastic day of matches on day two and you know Jamie there are so many you could pick from so I'm going to ask you to limit it to your top three give me your top three must watch matches of day two okay all right i'll give you two straightforward one and a third one you won't expect um Ooh, you... what, what was that were you gonna say something no i was gonna say is it gonna be rusevaroy corda because i could see you going that route or mcdonald or, or mcdonald versus Giron. Nah, you won't see it going coming don't worry <laughs> um I, so i think one of them for me it's like the last one on but chorch go fen um Great choice i think that's one that i really want to watch granted again this is my liking for that style of tennis, going out and, and just being able to grind. Neither of them are, you know, huge guys who are going to bomb serves because, I mean, ultimately, yes, while that's good and probably gives them an advantage in this tournament, that's just not the sort of tennis I want to go out and watch all the time. So, hey, when tennis is back, I want to go watch some guys who can duke it out from the baseline. And Borna Chorch and uh, David Goffin are both of those guys. So I'm 
really excited to see how both of them look. Um, see, I'm sure we'll see some stellar backhand to backhand rallies. Something that I can't, you know, personally relate to, but can at least respect from a, as a, from a spectator <laughs> um, point of view. But no, so that's one of one that I really want to watch. Um, I think the other one. I mean, you mentioned it earlier. I think Mackie and Giron is going to be a really interesting to one to watch. Again, you know, all the reasons I just listed from guys being able to duke it out from the baseline and hey. Some American college tennis guys, of course, we're cracked rackets. We're going to want to watch those. Um, then my third one, this is the one that I don't think you were going to see coming, but uh, slated to go on, I think, at like 3.30 Eastern. Fritz and Opelka taking on Sock and Query. And I have that on my list, too. Oh, you got to watch it. That's you got to watch it. The All-American Doubles Showdown, um, especially with Jack Sock involved. I mean, that's going to be a fun one. Yeah, well, I'll say this. I spent a lot of time on the Tennis One app with Luke Jensen, who, of course, former doubles Grand Slam champion, along with his brother Murphy, uh, All-American, head coach of the New York Empire, who, of course, won the 2020 World Team Tennis. I don't know why I'm promoting him right now. He doesn't need that. Um, But, look, he talked on and on and on about he would love to see top singles players playing more doubles, to see players committed to growing the sport at all levels, really just committed to the game. And this is an example of that. We're going to see a lot of that over these next three weeks, especially given we're in a bubble and just the opportunities for players to play. They're just like, yeah, sure. I'm going to take it. Why not? I want to be a little bit more match tough. I want to just spend as much time on court competing as I can right now. So yes, completely agree with you there. Two I have on my list, Layla Fernandez, the immensely talented young Canadian taking on Own Shabur, who is always just must watch because she's probably the only person who hits more slices than you, Jamie. Uh, by the way, you must have loved watching how many forehand slices Tommy Paul hit against Barankas. You were probably in heaven. Yeah, unfortunately, he lost though, so not a not a strong commanding moment to to back the forehand slice. But yeah. that is what it is. No, that's relatable for you as well. Um, hey, no, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, but I think that's a really fun one. And then I think two Americans who have been playing really good tennis, and this is the, hey, do you have momentum on your side? How does that manifest itself? Jennifer Brady, who, of course, won her first title in Lexington, taking on Jess Pegula. Uh, that's a really fun women's match up. But now, you know, as we're recording this, a couple of matches have already started. I gave my whole spiel on Schwartzman Rude and Rublev Evans during the GS draw breakdown I did with Stokowiak, so I don't have to do that again. I will say Anderson Tsitsipas, that's really fun. Hercots Isner, that's really fun. I'm all in on all of these matches, though. I'm going to be glued to my TV, and I imagine all of these listeners will be as well. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a really fun day of matches, and of course, every day here on the Mini Break Podcast, we're going to be breaking it down day in, day out, because we miss tennis just as much as everyone else, and of course, we want to take advantage of the fact that we have it back, and you know, we don't want any of you to be overwhelmed by all of the action. So much tennis occurs on day one, day two, day three of these sorts of events. So, of course, we will be back with all of you tomorrow to break down all of the action. And the reason we are able to do this day in, day out here on the mini break is, of course, because of the support we get from our wonderful sponsors. And we know we say it all the time at Cracked Rackets, right, Jamie? In order to play good, you got to look good and feel good. And, you know, the look good, feel good, play good is what we strive to do here at Cracked Rackets. And that's where our friends at Midwest Sports come in because for more than 30 years, they've served as one of the world's premier online retailers by offering a conference 
comprehensive selection of shippings of tennis supplies, excuse me, that few retailers can match. They've got tens of thousands of products, Jamie, available for shipping directly from their automated warehouse to your front door. And it's, you know, rackets, strings, grips, shirts, socks, shoes, you name it, they've got it. Jamie, are you a guy who likes to wear a collared shirt on, on the court? A collared shirt on the court? It depends. Yeah. I think I got to be in a very specific mood. I'll put it that way. Nor am I good enough usually to pull that <laughs> off. You know, it's not like I'm out there. It's so that this is my thing is you don't want to be the cheesy person going out there wearing a collared shirt if it's not the right moment. But some people can just pull it off better than a lot of others. And I'm probably in the lesser camp. I probably can't pull it off near as well as others. But uh, I appreciate a good collared shirt on court. Oh, I I so just I'm so anti wearing collared shirts. I agree with you. I just don't think I'm ever good enough to do it and be. It's just like I don't want this. I don't want to like play with this. I'm I'm cotton tees through and through. But I don't think that's going to surprise anyone. Nevertheless, you want those collared shirts. You want whatever it may be. Even you were watching on today and you saw the Agassi selection, the Agassi uh, what is it catalog of the Nike gear they were making all these players wear. You want it. They've got it on MidwestSports.com. And by the way, go sign up for their western and southern open giveaway where you can win things like free babalot rackets a free head racket tickets to the 2021 western and southern open and more all of that by signing up for their western and southern open giveaway which you can do by going to their website midwestsports.com by the way once you're there might as well use our promo code cr15 get 15 percent off your order free shipping on all orders exceeding 75 dollars and of course that free can of wilson extra duty tennis balls midwest sports again we are so grateful for their continued support of us. The least we can do is ask you to support them as well. MidwestSports.com, the promo code is CR15. Jamie, I didn't ask you, what did you think of the Nike gear? It was nice. It was uh, it was good to see. I think, to me, there's a big disparity. Um, I think whatever shirt Shapovalov was wearing, I wasn't a huge fan of. Um, but you saw some of the other guys in the Nike kits looked really good. Uh, I, can't, I, I wouldn't be able to name you offhand. Uh, what the shirt that Shabaval was wearing was called, but it was like just the sleeves were bright neon highlighted, and it wasn't a great look. But the rest of them looked phenomenal. It's cool to see all these guys in Nike kits out there doing the the '90s retro. It's nice. Yeah. No. Again, I will say this. I, I just think you have to be so good to wear a shirt like correct. That. Like you're if 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 Dalton Thieneman goes out there in that shirt, I'd be like, dude, clown. Yeah, I'd be like, come on, what are we doing here? Uh, but yeah, no, at the same time, I love that they're – I just like that they're trying new things. I think it's always really cool when they do that. And, of course, that has all the players looking good. You can look good as well. You can also feel good by going to our friends uh, aerobar.com, getting that only tennis-specific energy bar in the business. More potassium than a banana. A delicious cinnamon, honey, oat, and chocolate chip flavors. And best of all, it comes along with a podcast, our Getting to the Point uh, podcast, brought to you by our friends at Midwest Sports, where we focus – on the importance of fitness nutrition in the modern game of tennis and again it's the only tennis specific energy bar out there aerobar.com the promo code is cracked 15 uh but with that in mind again it's been a really fun uh first day of action we are looking forward to covering the rest of the week's action uh throughout the remainder of these three weeks in new york and by the way a huge shout out as always to our super producers max Fliegner and daniel westoff for the of editing job they do day in day out we are going to be keeping them busy these next three weeks and they never fail to get the job done so shout out to the both of them jamie going to give you the final word before we wrap your final thoughts on day one of western southern tennis is back 
That's what I have to say. No, I mean, it's it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, on a more serious note, I think we're both really trying to break down these um, these results and what we see on court to, to know what we expect for the big one, right? When the U.S. Mm-hmm. Open comes around, what are we going to be seeing and, and who are we going to be happy with? Um, because, you know, when we do that preview pod, we got to have some ammo. Yeah, this one was an hour. That one will be four. Uh, so oh absolutely be, <laughs> be ready for all of that. But with that being said, for my wonderful co-host, James Fusta McDonald, our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Druskin. Jamie, what do we tell the people? That's a break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.